Hi, my name is Titi Mutendi and you are listening to Enterprising Families Podcast. Welcome to the world of Enterprising Families where we discuss the issues of governance, next gen and looking at how families of wealth and family businesses growing into families of wealth can preserve their wealth, become better as they go forward into a new generation. Hi everyone and welcome to this episode of Enterprising Families and on this episode of Enterprising Families I have Daryl Stickle and we are going to be speaking about building trust especially in hostile environments and when we're thinking about building trust it's in our minds we just think trust is the easiest thing to have I mean you know me I know you what could be the problem Yet there's so many little things that happen in between knowing each other that can cause that break in trust and rebuilding that trust can be a very long and difficult journey and how to do it right is so essential to make sure that the trust lasts. So I'm so excited to have Daryl here with me and so welcome Daryl. Thank you so much Titi. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. And so I am going to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to my audience. And before we jump into the discussion of the day, which is all around trust. So I, I'll try not to go on too long. Um, I was, uh, did an undergraduate degree in psychology, worked with families in crisis and troubled teens, and then uh, transitioned into public administration and worked in the area of native land claims. And while I was there, they would ask me deep philosophical questions like, what is self-government? Or what will the province look like 50 years after claims are settled? And the last question they asked me was, how do we convince a group of people we've shafted for 100 years they should trust us? Which seemed like a really good question. And it got me thinking about long-term disputes and why they seem to last so long and seem to be so hard to, to solve. And so... I went to Duke and, and did my doctoral thesis on building trust in hostile environments. And since then I've worked for consulting firms and uh, I, I now teach at the Luxembourg School of Business. Um, and I help individuals and organizations understand what trust is, how it works and how to build it. Right. So when we're looking at trust, like I said, when um, I was doing that intro, Trust seems to be the easiest thing to, to give somebody or we take for granted that people trust us and we take for granted that, well, because they know me, they should trust me, right. especially, especially in a family or um, in, in a work environment. We, we, we have assumption of trust. But what I would like you to do is explain to me what really is trust? Right. So... Trust is the willingness, the definition that I use is that trust is the willingness to make ourselves vulnerable to somebody else. And that contains two different... And so when we're deciding whether to trust somebody or not, we ask ourselves two fundamental questions. How likely am I to be harmed? And if I'm harmed, how bad is it going to hurt? And those combine to give us a level of perceived risk. And so we each have a threshold of risk that we're comfortable with. And if we go beyond that threshold, we don't trust. And if we're beneath it, then we do. And I think you're right. A lot of people assume that everyone trusts them. 
Uh, research suggests that 95% of people believe that they're more trustworthy than average. Um, it's the biggest gap we find uh, among leaders. And so the, the gap between how much they think they're trusted and how much they actually are. Um, and, and partly we talk about levels of trust. So a lot of times there's this notion that, that trust is you either trust somebody or you don't. And, and, and in reality, we trust some people more than others. And so that depth of relationship, um, we can be more or less trusted, particularly in a family dynamic, right? Where we've got a history, uh, we know that the vulnerabilities can be different within a family. So it's not just the financial issues, but it's also the interpersonal pieces. It's the, the stories and the narratives that we carry with ourselves, how that impacts how others view us, all of those things tie into these things. You know what, the, the first part of your answer is what made me really think, right, that definition of trust. Just thinking, how much is it going to hurt? Right. Right. And so if we think about these as, as bar graphs, you know, we've got a level of uncertainty times a level of vulnerability gives us a level of risk. Well, in shallow relationships, that level of uncertainty is pretty high. And that means we can only tolerate a small range of vulnerability. But as those relationships get deeper, then the uncertainty starts to drop and we can tolerate much broader levels of vulnerability. And so building trust actually becomes really simple. It's if I'm beyond the risk threshold, how do I take steps to reduce perceptions of uncertainty? And how do I come to understand the other person's vulnerability and take steps to reduce it? And when we're thinking about a person's vulnerability, how essential is being vulnerable and allowing yourself to be vulnerable, especially in spaces where trust has been broken? That's the hardest spot, right? And, and a lot of times when we talk about trying to build trust early on, it's about making ourselves vulnerable taking that first step, getting somebody else to reciprocate, to, to respond in the same way, to make themselves vulnerable, because that can start a virtuous cycle for us. But when someone, is, when someone has sort of betrayed us or, the, or we feel like they have, or the trust has been broken, we have a particular caution around that. And, and for me, you know, most of the research on trust talks about this sort of cognitive rational approach, this sort of rational actor model where people think rationally and reasonable about everything and they don't, right? I mean, it's, it's like research scholars have never met people before. Um, in the middle of all this are our emotions, whether we like or dislike somebody else has a powerful impact on how we evaluate those, those bases of trust, that uncertainty and vulnerability piece. It also has a powerful impact on how we evaluate the perceived outcomes. And so if we like someone, we're more likely to look for reasons to trust them. And we're more likely to see that outcome positively. And if we dislike someone, we're, we're searching for reasons not to trust them. And often when we feel like we've been betrayed, we just don't like the other person very much, at least in that moment. And so it makes it even harder. And, and, and so a lot of times when we 
see these long-term disputes because the more extreme those emotional states become, the less rational we are, the harder it is to make reasoned arguments to, to make things right. The more important it becomes to try to reset those emotions. And, and a lot of times that comes with an apology mm-hmm. and not just an apology, but, but also an acknowledgement of the harm that's been done so that you show not only am I sorry for what happened, but I understand what actually happened. And here's the steps I'm going to try to take to prevent that from happening in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a strong way to start that re- resetting of those negative affective states, those negative emotions. Mm-hmm. And then we just need to start demonstrating positive actions and piling them up so that eventually the other person believes that we're, that we're really sincere. Mm. And thinking of that, how important is, I know the verbal acknowledgement is really important and that conversation that um, is pivotal where everybody acknowledges their part in the breaking of trust as well as um, then verbally commits to that change or verbally commits to working on rebuilding the trust. How important is that alignment between actions and words? So when I talk about uncertainty, it it tends to come from two places. Mm -hmm. It comes from the context that we're embedded in, which is sort of like the rules of the game, right? So Mm -hmm. if we think about a family office, there are formal and informal rules or a family business, family run business, there are formal and informal rules that apply. And sometimes they're different for different family members. Sometimes they're different for non-family members. Um, So that's one place where uncertainty comes from. The other place is from us as individuals. And there's three elements that sort of often get articulated or spoken of. And this is where most of the literature comes from. It's, it's some work that was done in 1995 by a guy named Roger Mayer and his colleagues. And they proposed three different uh, areas that would, that would show trustworthiness. And one of those was benevolence, the belief that you have my best interest at heart and that you'll do what's best for me. The second was integrity. So do I follow through on my commitments, my promises, and are my actions aligned with the values that I express? And the last one was ability. Do I actually have the competence to do what I say I'm going to do? So what you're basically asking about is that integrity piece is how important is it that, that our values are consistent with our actions and that, that we actually walk the talk after we've made a commitment. I think it's incredibly powerful and a good friend of mine, Tony Simons, I, I think is one of the world's leading experts on integrity he wrote an article called the integrity dividend where he showed that even small changes in our perception about somebody else's integrity led to significant changes in performance for companies and organizations. And so that belief that we're actually following through on our promises and that we're actually, our actions align with the values we express is incredibly powerful because it it reduces uncertainty. It allows people to predict our future behavior. And often what can be equally powerful is, is an explanation for why you broke the other person's trust. What was it that, that caused those actions? And how do we avoid that in the future? 
those types of settings. We have a, we struggle with integrity on a couple of fronts. Um, one is we have a tendency to overcommit. We overpromise, particularly when things are bad, right? We'll say, oh, I'll never do that again. That'll never happen again. And that's not always within our control. And another place we fall down is when we make promises and somebody hears something different, right? I think I've promised something to you. you you've heard something different. And then I think I've followed through and you don't. And so we've got this misalignment between our perceptions. And so the, the last piece is people interpret the world through stories. And so if I think I'm doing things that are in alignment with my values, well, that's my story. If you have a different narrative, then you may think it's that I'm not doing what aligns with my values. And so we actually need to include other people in that conversation. And the, the mantra that I tend to use is to ask, listen, and respond. And so first we ask about what are the promises you think I've made? And, and what do those look like? And, and we have explicit promises that we make. You know, I'll pick you up at three or I will get this project done on time. And we have implicit promises that, that people have expectations of us for. And that's, you know, you'll not share information that I give you or whatever that might be. And so having those conversations and being transparent. And so being able to say, remember when I promised that this is what I was going to do? This is me doing it. And, and you remember I told you that the company really mattered to me? Well, this is me engaging in activity that's for the best for the company. And here's what that looks like. Or the customers come first. Here's what that looks like. And so that there's less room for different interpretations. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's extremely powerful. So you've been in this space for a while doing this work and working with um, different trust barriers and uh, different yes. conflicts. And what, how, do, how is your work different from other trust scholars and practitioners? Well, there's a few places that I'm different. Um, I, so I tend to be more practical and applied than most of the scholars. Mm -hmm. and, and that's just because I've spent the last 20 years applying the model mm -hmm. um, and, and working with companies. Um, now, there are people who started from the other end. They just started trying to apply things. And, and they may not have this sort of theoretical depth. But for me, there's a few places that I differ. One is, is the inclusion of context, mm -hmm. which allows us to explain why we trust some people the moment we meet them or, or distrust them, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, for example, doctors or police officers, or and, and it can be different in different settings, but for some people, they meet a police officer and they're immediately uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For others, they're immediately comfortable, right? It depends on your past experience with, with police officers and how they're perceived within your, within your country or your area. Absolutely. Um, for doctors, most of us feel, oh, you know, like you go to a doctor's office and they say, take off your clothes and you do, right? <laughs> and all we've got to do is change that from a doctor's office to a washroom at a gas station. And it goes from being completely plausible to really creepy right? It could be the yeah. same person wearing the same outfit. And, and so context plays a huge role. And, 
and nobody had really talked about it before. Mm-hmm. Vulnerability was another place where mm-hmm. people treated trust like a dichotomous variable. You either trusted or you didn't. Mm-hmm. Inclusion of vulnerability allowed us to talk about depth of relationship. Mm-hmm. And then perceived outcomes is another part of the model that I use where, where we have different perceptions of the exact same event, which have an impact on how we interact the next time we engage with each other. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of all this are our emotional states. I was among the first academics to really start talking about the role that feelings play. Mm-hmm. And they're so powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it's why we have some of these long-term disputes. It's why we're seeing some of the struggles we're seeing now in terms of uh, countries becoming polarized and such passionate disagreements Mm-hmm. rationality seems to have left the building in a lot of these places absolutely so, and yeah. um, coming from the African continent um, I think we I have personally seen conflicts on, on so many levels um, tribal conflicts, family conflicts, mm-hmm. ethnic conflicts and um, and I've found that um, I'm an advocate for communication. So I completely agree with a lot of the things I just said. And um, also understanding perspective, which is some of the things that you said, understanding what we take for granted that if I say to Daryl, you know what, Daryl, I trust you, that it means one thing. Right. Daryl might take it as it means a completely different thing. Yes. And then when there's that misunderstanding of what I trust you means, or I'm giving you permission to do this means, or if it is said to mean one thing in, in implication, and then the action means a completely different thing. It's not right. to just have, um, and I've seen in Africa, we have these um, committees where we sit down and we explore what happened and how it happened and try to find um what can we say recourse for for to make everyone satisfied and one of the first things i've seen is that no matter where you are and where the conflict is and what stage conflict is when it comes to building trust communication should be a situation where you're not trying to Um, always find um, what can I say just justice right it it may not be what is needed and as beings we think justice is what is needed but I found that it's not always what is needed what are your thoughts on that oh such a powerful uh thought and, and such a you know a lot of times i i completely agree with you we have such different perspectives on on what would be fair mm-hmm. um and some of the justice research talks about you know we have different norms of of justice different perceptions of what's fair and one of those is uh equality everyone gets the same so for some people that's fair and some is need-based whoever needs the most gets the most and, and for some, that's fair. And, and that's often what happens in families. And then there's the sort of equity argument where whoever contributes the most gets the most. And that's perceived as fair. And, and then we're left arguing over, well, how do we weight different people's contributions? Or how do we weight people's needs? And so 
that conversation in itself can be a real challenge. The, the thing that I've found is, is, you know, and this pops up a lot when I talk about benevolence, that, that notion of doing what's in someone else's interest. Mm -hmm. You know, when I, I work with families and I'll ask them who here has their kid's best interest at heart and all the hands go up because of course they do. Mm -hmm. But then when I say, well, how many of your kids would say that? And usually it's about a third, right? It's about a third of parents who say, yeah, I think my kids would say that. And so if it's not clear in a place where it's supposed to be incredibly clear, Mm. how do we make it clear in other relationships, mm. right? That, that we're thinking about what's best for somebody else. And, and really it comes down to including them in that conversation. Mm. Um, you know, and so understanding what matters most to them. So for my kids, I came to realize that I was thinking about, you know, their best interest, but I was thinking about next week, next month, next year, 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road. And doing, getting them to do what was going to be best for them 20 years from now. I don't do that with myself. I don't hold myself to that standard, mm. right? But I, here I was trying to hold them to that standard. And, and what mattered to them was right now. And so mm. by coming alongside and being able to say, well, how can I help you be successful right now? I earned the right to talk about later. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And a lot of times when I work with people, I'll say, it doesn't matter if I think I'm benevolent. It matters if the person I'm working with thinks I'm benevolent. And so I completely agree with you that that perception around what's fair, what's just, what's a reasonable solution. Let's understand one another's perspective. And I know, um, you know, I, I live in Canada. Uh, we live a bunch above the U.S., which is some people have said it's like living in the attic of a meth house. Um, <laughs> So, so there's just so much insanity down there right now. And, you know, they're, they're talking about uh, uh, race relations and there's a, there's a subset of the population that's saying, Hey, you need to fix this. Well, that's kind of how we got in the problem in the first place is us making assumptions about other people's needs or what they would think was fair. We need to fix this. We, we need to have conversations about what good looks like what what benevolence looks like what fair looks like so that we can come together to actually create lasting solutions and a lot of the problems that we're facing right now i refer to them as big hairy problems things like race relations or things like climate change or the coronavirus mm. any of those things they require a level of collaborative collective action we we need to work together and the research suggests that our, our trust levels are at some of the lowest they've ever been. And so part of what I try to do is, is give people a shared vocabulary. Because mm -hmm. I found that in really difficult places where people have the same vocabulary, they're actually able to talk through some of these things without getting incredibly heated. They're able to say, well, this is what I thought in that situation. Oh, well, that's not what I intended this is what I intended, or this is what I was trying to do. Mm -hmm. And, and so we can actually facilitate a conversation when people are sort of on the same, using the same language. Mm -hmm. And looking at that and just focusing on that, um, the power of intention and the communication of intention. Right. There is that disconnect when you intend to do something 
and you don't communicate to the person why you have that intention. And then when they see it, especially when there's broken trust, they believe it's just um, a further betrayal or a further um, hurt that is being imposed on them. So how do you make that clear? How do you start that communication on a blank page where there is no assumptions, where there is... Um, at where you you already feel there's the tension because where there's break, yeah. breakage of trust, there's always that. How do I know this is best for me? How do I know that you are you've got good intentions for me? Right, and that that you won't take advantage if I give you the opportunity. Exactly. Um, and and this is the place where we see these vicious cycles take place, right? Where where I assume negative intent on your part. And, and then I look for evidence to confirm that, Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. I find a way to interpret whatever's happened in the worst possible way. Mm -hmm. And so in part, it it becomes about being extremely clear with our Mm -hmm. communication. Mm -hmm. And so taking greater care to say, this is what I'm trying to do. And here's why I'm trying to do it. And if the other party can, is included in that, then they, they see, oh, and, and you give them the chance any point along the way to disagree or to pull back or to say, no, 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 this isn't going to work. Um, it's about sort of, we assume that, that people have the, that we're trustworthy and that people have a positive story about us, that, that people will interpret, they'll give us the benefit of the doubt. And a lot of times that's not the case. And, and particularly in environments where harm has been done. Um, and that harm may have been intentional or it may be unintentional. And we get into these, these settings where, you know, we, we, don't, we don't experience harm to someone else the same way they do to themselves. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've got this, uh, this story I, I'm writing in, in the book that I'm working on where two kids are sitting in a sandbox playing and one kid accidentally nudges the other and knocks over his sandcastle. And so the kid who was clumsy feels like, Oh, that's a one out of 10, right? Like it was an accident. It wasn't intentional. The other kid feels like, Hey, I worked hard on that. It really mattered to me. That was a two or a three. And so we have this different valuation of what the harm was. And so they decide to get even on a two or a three and they push the other kid's face in the sand. And the other kid thinks, hey, I, I did a one and you got me back with a four or a five. And so it starts to escalate on itself, right? And yeah. then the first kid picks up a Tonka toy and whacks the other kid with it. <laughs> and it just starts to escalate. <laughs> and, and I wish that was just kids, you know, but, but we do that in work and with family. And it's like, you don't understand how much that hurt me. Mm-hmm. And, and you mm-hmm. think it was no big deal. I think it was a very big deal. Now I'm going to try to get even. And because I undervalue how much I hurt you, it starts to go back and forth and it starts to escalate on us. Absolutely. And leading into, I just want to comment on that before I lead into my next yeah. question. Um, I have had the most interesting discussions with um, different people, especially my family, when I always, I'm always astounded by the fact that 
um, countries go to war because kingdoms have gone to war before that. And we have normalized war. We have normalized um, spying on each other. We have normalized trying to gather intelligence and protect ourselves as as a country or as a group or as what we uh, assume are this and we have also gotten to the extent of trying to find the most um, destructive instrument to kill other people because we can't sit down and talk about it or we refuse to sit down and talk about it we just want you to admit you're wrong and we're not willing to admit our part in it and so therefore because we are at this space um no i don't want to know what your part in it is and no i i I don't want to understand that you've knocked my sandcastle by mistake you knocked my sandcastle i mean at this point and when it goes to family, you find families then dragging each other to court because of many, many years of mistrust that has been built because it probably came from an incident where you took my favorite toy when I was three. Yes. And since then, I just believe that everything you do is aligned with taking things from me or right. stopping me from doing something. And right. it's never based on what made you take that toy? And if it was a selfish action, do you still feel the same way now? Or what was driving that selfish action? Because sometimes you find even with children, there's, there is an essence of, um, I'll give an example. I was yeah. laying on my bed the other day and I said to my little, my, my youngest who's three, come sleep on mommy's back. So she came and she rushed in because we have this tradition where we put babies on our back. So she was quick and right. she was there. And then I was like, then I looked, took a little self with her and then she got down. And then I said to my middle one, I was like, come, let's see if I can still carry you on my back. And he came and he, and he was on my back. And the little one couldn't fathom. She's like, why are you taking my back? Like, that is my right. back. Yes. Get off there. I mean, why, why would you do? She broke into utter dismay and started crying and i was like but i'm i'm only one mommy only one bag we can take turns can't we (laughs) but then that feeling of anger that feeling of how dare you is something that going forward can break trust because it always feels like you're taking away from me and I can imagine what the, the older boy was thinking because he's probably thinking, but I was here before you. Right. That was my back before it belonged to any of you. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And so when you look at family businesses, how are family businesses when it comes to trust? Well, they, they're more complex for exactly the reasons that you give. Mm-hmm. There's so much history there. And you know, some of the work that I do, I talk about uh, one of my favorite books is, is called Exit Voice and Loyalty um, by Albert O. Hirschman. And um, he talks about, you know, how people respond when things go wrong. Mm-hmm. And he said that e- economics tells us that they exit and political science tells us that they use voice. Mm-hmm. Well, in a family, it's hard to exit, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're mm-hmm. kind of stuck there. And so the tensions can rise a lot higher um, and there can be a lot more um, discontent. It's, you can't just quit your family. 
much as some people would like to at times. Mm-hmm. And so you end up being held in sometimes dysfunctional patterns longer than you would like. And there's a, because it's a shared journey, there's also this sort of shared outcome. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and mm-hmm. so, and, and much like there's only one back, sometimes there's only one senior executive position that someone can take, or there's only one, uh, you know, coveted marketing position or someone wants to be doing travel and somebody else has that role. Mm-hmm. So there, there can be scarcity. Mm-hmm. And somebody once said to me that uh, the animals all look at each other a little different as the water starts to go down in the creek. Um, and so we see this notions of scarcity. It can lead to us fighting over some of those things. Absolutely. Um, and it's not just what do I get paid? It's not just what do I get to put on my business card? It's how am I seen by the rest of the family? Mm-hmm. So the level of vulnerability is often higher. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. do my parents love me? Mm-hmm. Um, do my siblings respect me? Mm-hmm. Um, those are the pieces of vulnerability that come to play here. Mm-hmm. And um, how do we look out for each other and for the family itself? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we think back to feudal times you know, somebody had 10 sons. Well, when they died, either one son got all of it or they got split up amongst 10 of them. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so they each had probably not enough to survive on mm-hmm. independently. Mm-hmm. And so how does that happen in family businesses and how do they make those transitions? It's a real mm-hmm. challenge. Mm-hmm. And I think um, as, we, as we wrap up on this episode, um, I'd also just like to add to the fact that communicating in family uh, in families is a lot harder than it is in other setups because I know growing up um, in in our communities in a lot of communities parenting was a a whole lot different from it is now we our parents didn't communicate the words I love you to us it's um they provided for us and to them the assumption was that if i'm providing for you if i've clothed you i've fed you make sure you're going to school you're in a in a warm house and you are getting the basics i'm doing the best to provide for you that in itself shows you that i love you but we've seen as the generations have evolved and we the children we deal with now and even ourselves that need to hear the words I love you is so important because it reaffirms us. It, um, it doesn't leave us in a situation where we are hoping and assuming that we are loved, uh, but we are clear because it's communicated to us. And it's understanding, I think, when it comes to trust, who is the person who's sitting at the other end of the table and make sure maybe that it's not such a long table because if you're right. having to scream at each other, you're not going to understand each other. Sometimes it's um, you may be the person who has to stand and go to the other end of the table and sit next to the person you're trying to build that trust with and right. have that commu- co- communication where you can see them eye to eye. And yeah. instead of saying, trust me or, um, you know, I all did all this for you, or I wanted, uh, I was doing, 
communicate what it is you thought you were doing and ask them what they felt right. you were doing. And, and I right. think just that may be the beginning of understanding each other may not build the trust overnight, but understanding each other might be critical to trust conversations. I agree. And, and we, we have a stigma about, you know, if, if I say, do you trust me? It feels awkward to say no. Right. Yes. And, and so we don't always get the best answers that way. Yes. And so this is one of the reasons that the model I use actually gives us a way to say, well, I'm just, you know, you haven't followed through on some of your promises in the past and that makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Or I'm not sure whose best interest you're looking after here. Is it the family or is it you or is it your kids or is it me? Mm-hmm. And that's a different conversation and it allows us to actually take action. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I agree with you, you know, a lot of times when my kids were really young, they'd start to have a tantrum and we'd be having a hard time, you know, getting along. Mm-hmm. And I, the thought would come to me, one of us is going to have to be an adult. Mm. And I'm betting it's probably going to be me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. So we, we need to take responsibility and show up in those relationships. Absolutely. And, and have those conversations. Absolutely. And just to wrap up um, this conversation, what are the, the final parting words you'd like our listeners to take away from this conversation? And also how can they connect with you and um, learn more from you or reach out to you? So I think one of the struggles we have around trust is, is awareness. Mm -hmm. People are welcome to reach out. Uh, I've got a website, www.trustunlimited.com. They can email me at Daryl, D A R R Y L Mm -hmm. at Mm trustunlimited.com. There's a bunch of material on the website um, that, that gives some sense of how this works. Uh, we're working on a, a series of virtual workshops that we can have conversations with folks about. I've been doing more of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess one of the rumors or the myths I'd like to dispel is that trust just is what it is. And we can't do anything about it. It's a skill mm-hmm. and it's, it's something that we can be active about and actually make progress on. Absolutely. And thank you so, so much, Daryl, for this conversation and every other conversation we've had. I always find so much value and I walk away so enriched because and, be, and because we do not see when trust is broken or when trust is created, right. but we have to deal with the aftermath always. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Sitsi. I really appreciate you. Mm-hmm.